welcome to Freedom Fighters Code Grey, a show where we discuss human trafficking, an issue that's happening in our community, in our backyard. We often think about human trafficking as something that happens in other countries, in other places, but it's a huge problem right here in Ontario. In fact, children as young as 12 years old are being lured and recruited for the purposes of exploitation. And over 90% of people who are trafficked in Canada are from within Canada's borders. So today, I'm really excited that Laura has joined me on the show. Thank you so much for being Laura, being here, Laura. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. So Laura is an advocate for justice, and she's an advocate to support survivors of human trafficking. So Laura, in your own words, what is human trafficking? Human trafficking, in my own words, would be the slavery of people for the purpose of uh, uh, child labor or um, sexual exploitation in order to exploit people. Hmm. And when we're talking about Ontario and human trafficking, what is the most common forms of human trafficking here in our communities? Um, in my understanding, it is sexual exploitation mm -hmm. of, of young women and uh, yeah, even women up to their 30s and into their 40s, but primarily with uh, teenagers from the average age is about 12. Hmm. And when did you first hear about human trafficking? <laughs> Um, I first heard about the issue on a Wednesday. <laughs> I love that you remember the day. <laughs> I do. It would just seared itself in my mind. Um, my husband had just had, um, he'd fainted at church and they brought in an ambulance and then he decided not to go with the ambulance but he would see his family doctor. So he went to see his family doctor on the Monday and his doctor said, oh, I think you had an anxiety attack. Come back and maybe we'll see you on Wednesday for lunch. Can you just meet with me for lunch? I want to talk to you about something. And so he meets with his doctor and he comes home and he tells me that um, his doctor had said to him, I heard you guys just bought a farm. Would you consider converting your barn into a home for survivors of human trafficking? I'm like, what is that? <laughs> it just... I had never heard of it before. So I started doing research about, about the issue and finding out just how bad it really was. So for me, it was a, just something that grew inside of me more and more as I found out more and I was, just felt that I was sort of directed to, um, to consider opening a home. And, uh, and so that vision just grew and grew and grew. And um, so in, to where it is today, and we can get into that in a little bit, but yeah. yeah. So when someone approached you with this and you started doing research and learning about human trafficking, what was kind of like the first step that you took as an advocate? What is the first thing that you got involved in and that you did? Um, okay, so primarily because uh, my husband was not supportive of having a home for survivors of human trafficking on our farm. <laughs> Um, I had to go with that and I pursued um, an initiative with a number of other people that we all together started an organization called Beacon of Hope. And so Beacon of Hope, for the first year there were um, maybe 15 of us that gathered together to fight human trafficking. We want to do something because a number of them had been to Cambodia and, uh, and seen the travesties of um, sexual exploitation there with the children. Mm -hmm. And so they had come back to Canada but wanting to do something here, not realizing still to the full extent of how much it's impacting our Canadian girls. And <clears throat> so that was quite, quite telling for all of them 
to, to return and just do more research here. And uh, we were meeting together for about a year and then finally not really sure exactly what we were supposed to do, but wanting to do something. And a local high school called and asked if we would do a presentation for them to their students. And so we showed up at about 8 o'clock and did four presentations till about 2.30. Um, you could hear a pin drop with these students. And we didn't have anything formal. We, had, we showed a video um, just of how of one woman's story. And, uh, but primarily, we, it was just my girlfriend and I at that time to, in the classroom. We just talked. And, uh, and someone had warned us and said, okay, the students will be coming in and out of the class. They'll be on their phones. They'll probably be talking. Just try to ignore them. I'm like, okay. But honestly, it was so silent uh, when we were discussing this issue. So it hit, you could tell that it hit close to home with them. Um, so that was our first experience with um, something of substance of what we could do. And it really morphed from there into what Beacon of Hope became, which was a, a team of people that would go into high schools. We ended up going to universities. Uh, we attended a church up here in Barrie um, to present to uh, a seniors group. Um, it just became quite a bit uh, more extensive than what we were originally thinking, I think. That's so amazing. It's so neat that you know this group of people came together with a shared vision and a shared passion to stand up for something that they knew and understood to be unjust in our world, mm -hmm. right? And began by doing a presentation and then that kind of grew into doing all these opportunities to speak and raise awareness about human trafficking. Yeah. Could you maybe share a little bit, why is it so important to do those presentations? Why is it so important to educate young people and our general public and everyone about human trafficking? What role does that play in fighting human trafficking? I think education can be prevention. Uh, especially in the high schools. So we went to one particular high school that we went to the first time. Um, I just remember a teacher just sitting there during the presentation with his jaw dropped the entire time. He could not believe that we had local stories. And uh, we, had been, we had been meeting together as a team and doing presentations for probably a couple years. And then we were introduced to a young survivor. And we invited her to share her story. And every time she shared her story, it was like, it's sad to think, but we actually had like girls running from the room because they were just, it was either, rec they recognized that it was happening to them or happening to a close friend or it, it hit home with mm -hmm. a lot of these young women. And, uh, and her story in particular, she was so, uh, she was so met with compassion from these students that it actually was a very healing time for her to share her story and, uh, and just be understood. Um, but at the same time, knowing that people are compassionate and they want to do what they can to help others. So prevention was the primary reason why we go into universities and high schools and, and, uh, and just praying that it does not happen to our local girls. It makes me think of the importance of stories mm -hmm. and the, the power of storytelling, not only to change mindsets, change attitudes towards something, but also like how healing sharing your own story can be mm -hmm. and how empowering it can be um, to share your story and then find ways that 
other folks maybe resonate with what you're sharing and to be able to support other people in exiting situations of exploitation. So after your involvement in Beacon of Hope, what what was your next step in the fight against human trafficking? Um, so my next step was more research and, uh, and making connections, doing networking. And so around that time, uh, this was probably about four years ago, maybe five years ago, I met up with a young woman named Tamea Nagy. And uh, she and I, over the years, have become really close. And But at the beginning, she had a dream to have a retreat for survivors of human trafficking. And so we met together with a number of other people and tried to push that forward. And it took quite a while. Um, and things didn't really seem to be coming together for it. But she and I would still continue to meet. And I'd try to push things forward like I, if I could. And uh, so in the end... <laughs> I, uh, it just worked out that I said, you know what, why don't you just use my house? Like, we'll do it at my place and we can, um, and like, I'll clear it out of my family and, <laughs> and we'll do that, go that route. And that was, it was a turning point for me because I had gotten to know a few survivors before that, but, um, but this just really, it made me see the need in each of their lives for help for someone to come alongside them and say I support you where you're at and I want to take you from there if you're willing and help you into a future that um, is bright and healthy and safe um, and so that was really the stepping stone for uh, for my next initiative which um, so that was in 2017 that we did the retreat. It, it was beautiful. Like, it was, there were so many moments about it that were just, like, astounding. And Can you share a little bit about, <laughs> so what did the retreat look like? And actually, I just want to comment, because when you're sharing, I'm just so grateful for your willingness to take that step, to open your home, to invite people in, and to recognize that each person is an individual with unique needs, and your heart to see individuals find healing and safety and restoration. And so just, yeah, thank you for taking that step to open your home. But what did that look like? What did it look like to invite people in? What was what was the retreat? What is a retreat okay. for individuals who have been impacted by trafficking? Sure. So it started out with uh, them coming on a, um, a Thursday morning, and, uh, and then they stayed through till Sunday afternoon. So we had everything from um, finance classes and talking about money and their view of money. And Tamea was leading all of these classes. She's had enough exposure to survivors in Canada, having uh, been trafficked herself from Hungary, but having enough exposure within um, dealing with survivors here that she understands their mindset and a lot of the things that they're dealing with. So we did uh, we did that. We did um, we thought we would do cooking classes there wasn't really interested in cooking classes, but there was a lot of really good food, so that was helpful. And we did a like self-defense class on the backyard. We um, we learned a lot through the process of what was overwhelming to them 
and uh, initially we were going to bring in a lot of people to uh, to help and to make it work smoothly and then we recognized that uh, that the girls were just really apprehensive about meeting new people all throughout the weekend so we shut everybody down told them not to come and just left it with a few core um, a few core uh, Main people, yeah, facilitators, exactly. We someone opened uh, their store to us, uh, and it's a, called a uh, Maurice's store down in in Cambridge, and she opened it up to us to come in and look through all the clothes that they had um, set aside for these girls, and then these girls went home with these clothes. Like it was beautifully overwhelming, but in a beautiful way. And, uh, and just because we were out in the country, the girls could go for walks, and a number of them did um, bird watching. And it was like the whole weekend, it really seemed to be bathed in a beautiful way, which was really inspiring. Yeah. Thank you, Laura, for just sharing those steps that you took to fight human trafficking in the initial stages of when you learned about trafficking, getting involved in Beacon of Hope, and then opening your home to have the survivor retreat where folks could um, take classes and learn about ways that they can heal and um, move further along in their journey to restoration. So we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a few minutes to continue learning about the ways that Laura is an advocate for survivors of human trafficking. And welcome back to Freedom Fighters Code Grey, a show where we discuss human trafficking, an issue that's impacting our communities right here in Ontario. Today I have with me Laura, who's an advocate for survivors of human trafficking. So Laura, I'm just so grateful that you're on the show today. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So Laura was sharing with us just her first step getting involved in human trafficking after she first heard about this injustice. She started raising awareness through doing education in schools and community groups, and then she opened up her home to have a survivor re retreat within um, with, with a survivor, Tamea. So Laura, after you did that retreat with Tamea, what was the next step that you took to continue being an advocate for individuals who have been impacted by trafficking? Okay, so um, my next step really was, um, had sort of started a number of months before the retreat even, and just... And welcome back to Freedom Fighters Code Grey, a show where we discuss human trafficking, an issue that's impacting our communities right here in Ontario. Today I have with me Laura, who's an advocate for survivors of human trafficking. So Laura, I'm just so grateful that you're on the show today. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So Laura was sharing with us just her first step getting involved in human trafficking after she first heard about this injustice. She started raising awareness through doing education in schools and community groups, and then she opened up her home to have a survivor re retreat within um, with, with a survivor, Tamea. So Laura, after you did that retreat with Tamea, what was the next step that you took to continue being an advocate for individuals who have been impacted by trafficking? Okay, so um, my next step really was, um, had sort of started a number of months before the retreat even, and just in my head, and the process of how, the, how it would work, how it would play out, and, um, and that was to open an online bakery. 
where I could employ survivors of human trafficking as well as sell. Um, it was organic at the time. We're not solely organic now, but organic baking to the general public. But I had to do it in my own way too, something that I could do that was sustainable. Um, I've got five kids, and so just managing that was going to be a bit of work, and I knew that. But at the same time, I um, so the Greenery, which is the name of the bakery, um, has become <clears throat> has become a source for um, providing finances as well for. I'll get into that, Elora House, and for seeds. Um, so because I didn't have those things established at the time, I just said, I want to provide finances for um, a home for survivors of human trafficking someday. And uh, with that kind of idea in the back of my mind, um, we moved forward. And so we opened in September of 2017. And uh, one of the girls who was at the retreat, she became a primary baker with me, which was really exciting for me um, to work with her and get to know her better and, um, and to know her skill set, and but also more about who she is. Um, and then we did Christmas cookies uh, at Christmas time, and we were able to employ six survivors, which was wow. really neat. Yeah. And learning a process through that um, of them committing and then not showing, mm -hmm. just for various reasons. And this is, again, my process in learning to work with survivors of the, the various levels of trauma that they go through mm -hmm. and what they can handle and what they can't handle. And some days they just can't handle coming into work and being with other people or making the effort to get to work. It's not, I don't think it's being at work because they all admit they enjoy that, but I think it's the process of getting there that it's oftentimes um, stifling for them. I understand for individuals who have been trafficked, there's a number of mental health conditions that someone could experience after being trafficked, yeah. like complex PTSD, mm -hmm. depression, and anxiety. So I can understand why that would be really challenging to, you know, come to the bakery at a certain set time if that day um, they're feeling triggered with complex PTSD. So yeah. um, in what ways is, is the bakery empowering and um, allowing individuals who have been impacted by trafficking to flourish or to find their unique giftings or um, to receive the finances that they need to continue in their healing journey? Um, for me, a primary way of them growing and maturing in just their process is to actually connect them with mentors. So a lot of our um, people that work in the granary are volunteers. And so they come with the understanding that they're going to be baking, but they're also going to be rubbing shoulders with these girls. And, uh, and we've seen a lot of um, positive things come out of that as they recognize that they can work with people they don't know and it doesn't have to be over the top for them. They can work through a process. And, and there are some times where they're just like, you know what, I just need to sit out for a little bit and then I'll come back at it. Um, but they, they're interested too in their own process of, of moving ahead and, and gaining employment. I don't f see them as forever employees of the granary, but I see this as a, an opportunity to be like a launch pad for them of getting into um, other areas of life that they can 
begin the process of working with people they don't know or being told a job that they're not familiar with and working through that. Um, one of our girls that had worked with me from the beginning too, she, <laughs> I sort of laugh because now she works as a baker for Tim Hortons and full time. Wow. Um, which, Incredible. Like, what else could I ask for is that she finds fulfillment in doing a job and that she's able to keep it. Um, so I'm, yeah, hugely encouraged by the steps that these girls are taking. And gaining the vocational training and skills that are necessary yeah. to then take that step to independent living and to obtain a job and to have a safe space to work through employable skills and working with new people and building relationships are also essential in someone's um, healing process. All of that. Yeah, to empower people to live up to their full potential of who they want to be in their design and purpose for life. Right. Um, so what does the granary and bakery look like? Like what kind of baked goods are you doing? Okay. Um, what kind of, like how does it function? Is there a physical place that people could go visit the bakery? Uh, yes, I get asked that regularly. Oh, I want to come see how you're, like how things work. I'm like, yeah, well, so right now we actually are baking out of Heritage College Kitchen that we have an, an unwritten agreement with them that uh, we can bake every Wednesday afternoon and uh, and then our baking or prepare everything Wednesday afternoon and then our baking is done Friday mornings for uh, right now we've um, sort of moved away from just um, doing for uh, baking for the public and we've started baking for a certain organization called the sustainable market and so they do all the background, they get all the orders, they just tell us how much uh, we have to bake and um, and then when we're supposed to bring it to a certain place, which is every Friday afternoon. So it works out well, I think, for us, just again, for where I'm at, um, not being able to do everything. <laughs> None of us can do everything, right, Laura? But what I love about your story and what you're sharing is you're a mom of five, right? Five. Yes. And um, many other things in life. You're a friend, you're a wife, you're of all these different roles, but at the same time, you do the next right thing, mm -hmm. right? And so starting the bakery was the next right thing yeah. to empower people to have the skills that they need to uh, get jobs and to continue in their healing. And I think that's so beautiful. So you, you mentioned a few times now about a lore house and seeds and how the granary was kind of set up with the hopes of creating this house um, for individuals who have been impacted by trafficking. So could you tell me about Alora House? Sure. What is it? How did it get started? And what is the vision and, and um, your dream for this house? Okay. So when it came back to, it all comes back to really what the doctor said that first day when he started the whole thing by talking to my husband about um, having a home for survivors. That vision never left my heart, my soul. And it has morphed into other things that I think are intricate and intricately involved in the process. Um, so see, uh, Elora House came about because I had a, a desire to see a home that had sort of three stages of homes. Uh, first stage where the women would come off the street or through victim services or police, they'd be directed to the home and they'd do an intake form and it would be determined before they even got there that they really wanted um, help and healing to move forward in the journey. Uh, because one of the things that I've learned is that there is a process of getting out and then getting back in and then getting out and then getting back in and oftentimes they think they're getting back in voluntarily but then someone comes along and takes that voluntary uh, desire away from them and puts them under their control again so 
it's it's a there's a blurred line between prostitution and human trafficking. I'm not going to get into that today, um, but for uh, for the girls that I've worked with, I've seen that as well. Um, so that they've been in that flux situation. Yeah, and it can be really difficult for someone to exit a situation of exploitation because we know often someone is being. Uh, recruited and targeted by someone who poses as a romantic partner, mm -hmm. trusted friend, or yeah. boyfriend. So, um, Laura, in terms of this house and, and what you're thinking and your dreams for it, when the doors open, um, what does that home look like? So you mentioned that there would be a first-stage housing, second-stage housing, third stage. Where are you in that process? Okay, so Alora House came about as a collaboration between a woman named uh, Louisa Krauss and myself. When I met her, she had a huge desire to help women initially right off the street detoxing all that kind of thing that wasn't more that wasn't so much my goal um, but I saw it as a need and because that's the very first step of their process uh, the second step is the second stage and that's where they would live in a house for longer term like up to a year year and a half where they would move through a series of phases within that stage. And, uh, and each phase is, um, is dependent on the one before. So the level of learning, whether it's through education or whether it's through job training or whether it's through um, just uh, financial classes or there's all these sequence of events that, um, that everything is very intentional. Nothing is imposed on the women, but everything is very intentional on continuing to help them move ahead in their journey towards being independent and not needing to return to a life of selling their body for uh, paying their bills. And so then after stage two, there would be stage three, and that's not fully developed yet, um, but it's in the understanding that they, like SEEDS, which is the name of the organization that would um, a division of, um, would have a division of Alora House, as well as the Granary and Beacon of Hope, they would all be divisions of SEEDS, and SEEDS stands for supporting every Eve's daughter safely. Mm -hmm. And so within that would be stage three as well, which doesn't have a name as per se yet. Second stage, we determined that it would be called Eve's House. So there's a Laura House, Eve's House, and a stage three home where um, seeds would pay a subsidized income for them the initially and then slowly back away from paying for um, housing for them, uh, but just still offering support. So where are you? At right now in this housing project and, and dream that you have for first stage, second stage, third stage housing, mm -hmm. and where does where does Alora House exist in Ontario? And same with the Granary. Okay. Oh yes, right. Um, so Alora House is located in Wellington County, and it is a safe house, so we're not divulging the actual location of it. And um, and the Granary exists at Heritage College, so it's. It, Cambridge, Ontario. Cambridge, Ontario. Sorry, yes, that's right. Um, yeah. yeah, and so with uh, Alora House, when do your doors open to folks? Okay, we had aimed to open last fall and we ran into some hiccups, but we are actually ready to open our doors now. Everything is like there's food in the pantry, there's dishes in the cupboard, there's bedding on the beds. Uh, we are all set to open and it's just a matter of receiving our first young woman. Yeah. So it's very exciting. That's really exciting. I'm super 
just grateful for you taking the time to share with us today your story of how you got involved in the fight to end human trafficking. And really quickly, could you share one way that someone could get involved in taking that first step of fighting human trafficking? Sure. Um, I think if people could do just the next step. So if you're interested in the issue of human trafficking, do your research. Find out a lot more about it. And um, in other ways, there are so many organizations like Fight for Freedom and other organizations that are doing a lot of good work. And if your desire is to help in some way, look at what's in your hands. For me, I enjoy baking. And that was the primary reason for starting a bakery. 